it's interesting. I, I can almost uh, tell what kind of talk you expect me to give by who comes, because some of you show up for uh, the most, the deepest, most ultimate truth talks, and some of you show up for the ones that you feel like you can digest quickly. The simpler, um, more common elements. Some of you show up for practice-oriented talks. Some of you show up for all the talks. I don't want to discount those who, who come. Some don't show up for any talks. I don't. <laughs> but it's an interesting, uh, because in the Hafiz poem I read tonight, he, uh, he frames you know, the beauty and wonder of life in the simplest, in the simplest act, in the most common things we do. And I, often when I listen, uh, which I sometimes do to other teachers give talks, I don't go to their ultimate truth talks. I don't, that doesn't interest me that much, uh, not because the subject doesn't interest me, but um, what I'm interested in is how they convey the simplest truths. And uh, often I find some uh, some reorientation to my own way of looking because I keep refreshing myself on those topics. So I just want to encourage people not to show up for certain subjects, but just come for the whole Dharma because it's all there. You'll, you can go very deep with the simplest act, within the simplest perception. And uh, I hope that's what dependent in origination can uh, do for you is it, it shows you profound the profound quality of the Dharma within a, the simple act of perceiving. But before we get to that, I want to spend a little time talking about uh, something that's related and feeds into the subject tonight. Uh, in uh, the one of the Buddha's suttas, Samyutta Nikaya 22.86, for the... <laughs> I like doing that these days. Uh, a disciple of the Buddha, Arunada, uh, asked the Buddha the essence of his teaching. And the Buddha replied very simply, I make known suffering and its cessation. I make known suffering and its cessation. He says... That is all I teach. I thought, now why did he say that? You see, that I, wait, I don't necessarily stop with that and just give it a... I said, why did he say that? Why would he frame his entire, uh, however many years he taught, into a single sentence like that? Obviously, he taught a lot of things. He taught dependent origination. He taught many, many different five faculties, the four noble, it's just on and on. So why would he say, I teach only one thing? And I want us to get this one thing down because it's intimately and intricately related to dependent origination. Uh, but if we think we're off on a different subject, that we have skipped the basics of the Buddha's teaching and now we're off doing something else, then we're not going to be able to piece these things together and cement them so that the mosaic of all these teachings makes one common theme. So why would he say that? So let's look at some of the reasons that he might say that. For one thing, he might say that because virtually everything he talks about has a common direction to it, a common theme 
associated with it, and that the things he talks about that doesn't have that common theme associated with it probably are for us to um, analyze and see the distorted way that we are perceiving, the pain that's arising within the distortion of the way we're seeing, and hopefully uh, from that we're willing to release that way of seeing and come back to a more profound and direct way of seeing. So that's one reason. And so it just uh, it keeps us, um, it keeps us aligned uh, with, in a common wise view. Instead of saying he taught many things, this one thing that he sees keeps us refreshed in our view, in our wise view of the teaching of Buddhism. The direction from moving towards suffering to the end of suffering. And as a profound way that we can measure, if you, in the beginning, everyone tries to measure their progress. In the end, it becomes less important. But all along the way, you want to see that, you're, that something is happening to you that's relevant spiritually. And it's often hard to trace. It's hard to put your fingers on. But the one common direction that he's pointing to is that Mostly, you could say that you suffer less, I hope. If you're not, you probably are doing the practice in a wrong orientation. So you can say, oh, I, yeah, there's more peace in my life, more contentment, less, less self-betrayal and self-criticism and all of that. All of that makes for a happier, lighter lifestyle. And so that it gives us a, a very common sense of description for their path and for walking on the path. And it gives us a wise intention. Your, our intention, if it slips, can always come back to that simple f- phrase. My intention is to release my uh, self-imposed suffering, to step out of this suffering. And the direction I'm going in is to the alleviation of that suffering, the alleviation of my conflict and struggle. And so uh, it guides us. It's a form of navigation, you might say. Uh, and it also uh, it keeps us from getting distracted on side issues, on like how much of this I've got and how little of that I've got. Because when you start doing that, guess what? You're struggling. When you start weighing in on how well you're doing and how you need more of this and you're depleted in that and if you could just find more contentment and deeper concentration, somehow that would alleviate your suffering. No, dropping those ideas alleviates your suffering. Not finding those qualities and nurturing and cultivating on and on. So it really takes us to the basic under, it's the, it's the substantial motivation element. And so what's motivating my practice? Is it to alleviate suffering or is it to gain more of this quantity or that quality? And so that's an important consideration. The other, it's an interesting, it also arrests uh, contentiousness. And I, what I mean by that is uh, when I came back from Burma, I had struggled a great deal uh, in that country with the particular practice that I was given. Struggled in the sense that uh, the teacher kept telling me to try harder and I couldn't try any harder. And so I felt uh, completely defeated, and so the, my reaction, my defense against that, it was to make judgmental comments to other p- 
people about that practice. Uh, but basically, I was, what I was trying to do is be right. And um, I wasn't seeing or even attuned to how it was that I was creating the su- struggle, the suffering associated with the struggle and effort I was imposing on myself. If I looked at the right issue rather than trying to defend the wrong issue, which was the contentiousness, the argument about what practice was better and all of that, it eliminates all of that. I said, why was I struggling back then? What was I doing to myself that created that sense of tension, you see? So it keeps us very aligned. This is not a small thing. This is a tremendous benefit to our practice to have that direct, direct uh, inspiring uh, line of purpose, intention, view, and uh, orientation, direction, all of that. The other point that I think is very worth making here is that he doesn't say this is uh, from struggle to uh, uh, less struggle. He says this is from struggle to the end of struggle. Now, many of us find that whatever we've done in practice has been very helpful. We've lessened our struggle. And some of us love just stopping there and saying, you know, Buddhism is so great, we project ourselves as being teachers, talking about how accomplished we are because we have eliminated some childhood difficulties or seen through some of our emotional reactions. And we love to pronounce ourselves, to come forward and make a a public statement about how well we've done. And that's going from struggle to some elimination of struggle. That's not, this is an absolute continuum. This is from struggle to the end of struggle, right? And any time that you're pontificating about your accomplishments, you're in a form of struggle. You can guarantee that there's some pain arising. So this is an absolute continuum. This is something that reaches out until there is no more. And when we start looking at our practice in relationship to that, you see where we can direct our attention because many of us continue to struggle along different lines. But again, in that orientation, it shows us where to look. It doesn't, the problem with what I see many Buddhist practitioners doing is that they look at what they can do to, to build their practice up, to feel accomplished, to feel like they're getting somewhere. But their measurement is not the end of struggle, it's the obtainment of something. Whereas if they looked at what trying to obtain something does to them, they would see a struggle that trying to obtain something imposes upon them. The motivation for that, when you want something you don't have, that is the definition of struggle. So if we took this seriously enough and really looked at it and used it as the direction for our entire practice, for everything we do spiritually, we would see very clearly the way out of struggle. And it's because it's confusing like that, because there are so many things he taught in all the years of his teaching, some, I don't know, 40 years of teaching, however long, he said a lot of things, all of which distilled down in his mind to struggle and the end of struggle, but in our mind, it gave us a lot of things we could do to struggle further about. 
so it's to get, so get the, let's get the right orientation to this because when we're talking about dependent origination, we're talking about using dependent origination to end struggle. So how is it important? How does that how does that match up? Doesn't sound like talking about nama rupa and ignorance and. Uh, consciousness and all that. What's that have to do with struggle? Well, it has everything to do with struggle because contained independent origination really are the first two noble truths. It shows us the disposition of how we come into struggle, how we form the very methodology, methodology of our struggle, the means by which we are in conflict with the world. And it also, because it shows us experientially the sequential links, the conditioned arising of how struggle occurs, it also gives us a possibility of ending that struggle. If we can see these links, which are very possible to do if you spend the time and have the focus and the intention to end struggle, you'll find that there that everyone can find and be invited in to some link here and begin to really understand the conditionality of these links and so, in fact, release the tension, release the arising of the next link from being fully abiding and aware within the link that might be arising. We'll get more, I'll talk more about that in a moment, but... The essential point here is that this topic that we have spent half a year on and are going to spend another half a year on has a direct, a direct line to that simple statement of ending suffering, cease, teaching suffering in its cessation. Okay? That's what Buddhism is about. Now, you know, I wish I could, you know, make it all, you know, sort of, where you're just kind of lost in some kind of mystical haze and, you know, but none of that is really helpful. <laughs> I mean, it may be lovely while you're going through it, but then you crash at the end of it. It's like a drug trip, really. What we're here is very pragmatic. It's very practical. It's about the lives we live and what we do within that. It's about the perceptions we have within our life and how to alter those perceptions so that to align with the truth of what's coming from us and to us rather than to artificially or imagine our way through life. So it's a very down-to-earth, down-to-earth practice. Now, so let's just look at what we have talked about in terms of dependent origination up until this point, and I'd like to use the analogy of a dinner party. So we've created a dinner party with uh, six or seven seats around the table. And we've invited ignorance. And we've <laughs> invited, uh, what's the other one? Oh, karmic formations or mental formations. We've invited consciousness. I'm very amazed I can remember these sequentially. We've invited name and form, calling something something saying something about. We've invited the six senses. And so they're all sitting around the table together. 
And uh, they're uh, relatively quiet. They're, the ignorance is at the head of the table. <laughs> it, I won't call it a gender, but it is there sort of, uh, so everything is sort of uh, kind of um, and cloudy, confused. And because it's a dinner party, there's another guest that's about to enter the room. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. That's the guest of contact. In this case, the food. So the dinner guests being hungry, of course, light upon the fact that that food is coming. And when contact is made, there is an eating frenzy that occurs. Now from here on out, from here until we stop this series, this sequenciation, we're going to be talking about that eating frenzy. It gets much more um, excitable here uh, because things start uh, moving into a, a kind of, of frenetic activity. And but it's also very welcoming in the sense for, for our awareness because it's more easily seen than some of the less obvious links that we've been talking about. I mean, it's hard to see uh, consciousness as arising. It's hard to see name and form or even the sanskars, or the mental formations. That's not quite as hard, but... You can get a sense that these things can be, but they're, they're nuanced, they're subtle. But from henceforth, we are talking about you, right? In fact, one friend of mine who teaches this subject starts with the 12th link and works backward because that's where all of us are when we come into the room. We're at the 12th link and... <clears throat> Talking, that's where we can start to uh, let ourselves be known. And once we're known as the full embodied person we believe we are, we can start looking and chopping or surveying that uh, in, in ways that, uh, that uh, we can begin to see the conditioned influences that are part of our presentation of our image. So this sense of, uh, of sitting around a dining table a dinner table, is also meant to convey the fact that all of these factors condition the arising of the next. It's not one uh, cause creating the next in some kind of sequenciation. It's really a mass influence here of all these things together, and now you've got this. Now let's look for a second at, um, at the... Contact, at contact. Contact's a very interesting, it's the sixth link. Uh, and last week, it's always helpful to go back a, a link so you can get a, get a sense of how this next link uh, arrives on the scene given the influences of the previous links. But we, we're talking about the six senses. Now, the six senses, think of the six senses as sort of six channels uh, leading into a, a central basin of water. 
that central basin is your brain. And it's trying six channels, six senses are flooding the brain with information all the time. I mean, there's no way to cut off any of those. It's just, it's just pouring in. So it's always flooding itself. And so somehow the brain has to make sense of the world given the input of these six channels. That's no small project. That's, that's a major a major undertaking. And within each of those channels, there's a consciousness associated with that channel that has its own memory system, its own uh, karmic formations, etc. If you think about it, you know, sometimes if you've ever walked into a room and you smelled something, uh, even though you might also be looking at it, the smell bring, takes you into a memory system that the sight may not. And you can begin to sense the individual consciousnesses of each of those sense doors that arise when the flooding of that particular sense data. If it's sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, or thoughts and ideas. The Buddha wanted to clear out what happens here because it's a lot of stuff going on and the brain is working overtime trying to make sense of it. <clears throat> so the brain has a kind of blueprint for how it's going to approach each situation. And it does that through its conditioning, through what it has always believed about itself, its assumptions, its memories. That's the filtration system that clears out much of the data so that only the data that makes sense gets through. The rest of the data doesn't. Now the Buddha wanted to clear out that, that blockage, that filtration system, because he's, it's there at the, where the data is being filtrated according to one's own preferences and one's own ideas and one's own memory that the system takes on a personal quality, a personal image, a personal set of properties. It all becomes very personal once it's filtrated. The data is filtrated through the system. So Buddha, in one of his sermons, as I mentioned last time, he said, look, here's what's really happening. Right? Sight and its accompanying forms and colors. Smell and flavor. Smell and... Smell and what? Flavors? Smell and smell. Smell and flavors. Fla no, or taste and flavors. Taste and flavors, smell and aromas. Thank you. Smell, <laughs> smell and aromas. Anyway, you, you get it. All right. So there are all six of those. And that's what's actually happening. That's the all of what's happening. All right. But somehow, this feels filtration system is making much more out of the data than just seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, and ideas. It's, it's like somehow it, when we look out, we just don't see individual sense, senses arising. We see a, a world and a worldview and ideas and a formation and a conclusion and a narrative and all of this. And we see a, an expectation and a, all of that. All of that somehow arises where did all that come from? Because all we got in this moment, the only thing that was coming in is 
sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, and, I, and, I, and thought. So everything else is imagined. <laughs> Let me say that again. <laughs> everything else is imagined. I mean, it's so clear. I don't know why it took the Buddha. I mean, <laughs> you think, okay, what's really happening to me here? Well, there are six things that are happening. That's it. Everything else, we have made up an imagination. We've built up an imaginative response. And so if we want to go back to the way things are, which is often how the Dharma is described, let us return to the data as it's arising. And the data is very simple. It's very, it's very simple. Now, here's the problem, is that we don't want to go back in simplicity because our sense of me likes the profundity of an exaggerated importance. It likes the imaginative response. It gets its sense of aliveness, its sense all of the things we've talked about in many of these talks. It likes building upon that. It likes becoming more dramatic, not less, more entertained, not less, more stimulated, not less. It likes, it likes the excitement of the world. It wants to go out and proclaim itself. And so we're reluctant to f discover this simplicity of what we are. And so we just keep building the imaginative response to what we are over and over again. But when we're willing, when we have the sufficient courage to be tired of excess, something turns in our heart and we want the simplicity again. And something wonderful arises with the simplicity of the senses. If we're all quiet for a moment, we can all live that together. And as we quiet, you see that the senses, without the accompanying uh, mental formations, without the reactivity, without the elaboration, without the pontification, without all of that, when it's just the senses. There's a kind of knowing, the purity of knowing. It holds the senses, but doesn't elaborate on the senses. It knows the senses, that is, it knows what's arising within it, not intellectually knowing, it just knows from like something a direct impact or a direct movement through consciousness. And that knowing has a beautiful, alive feeling to it. And the senses are there, but the senses are rising within this. Now, this is very important. I mentioned it, I think, in the discussion last week, but I wanted to mention it to those of you who didn't participate. This is the information on which the catastrophe happens. You see... Just the knowing, this beautiful knowing, like hearing the sound of a bird, but not the name of the bird, just the sound of the bird. And then the thought of the name of the bird arises quite independently, and then there's the knowing of the bird. So there's this knowing that arises within consciousness that is very pure, very pure. But the brain 
the need to complicate, the need to elaborate, isn't satisfied with that purity of knowing. You see, because it diminishes, it's, it's a diminished self-respect. You don't get much respect from just that pure, perfect, beautiful knowing. It, you don't get a lot of uh, self-worth from that. What you get self-worth, what you and I get self-worth from, is the pontificating, is the intellectualization, is the knowledge on which that sound is known as the bird and what kind of bird and when it, where it lives and all of that, on and on. So that now you're a bird watcher and maybe a master birder. I don't know. The point is that, the, that consciousness pulls out from that simple knowing, that beautiful simple knowing that's just the sense door, just the knowing of what's arising. And this beautiful discernment that lives and abides within the awareness of that. Where the spiritual resides, my friends, just that, that simplicity of knowing. The mind, consciousness, pulls, out, pulls it out, makes, starts complicating, starts adding things to it. Oh, that's a robin. And it confuses that simple knowing into an intellectual knowing. And suddenly, it's I that knows the robin. Now that's, now I can take a, now I can, I can get an award for knowing more birds than you do. I can get some self-affirmation, you see? And for something that only lives tentatively, like you, the image of us, the sense of me, we're constantly in need of affirmation because if we're not affirmed, we go away. Sometimes it takes a negative affirmation. Doesn't matter which, what, whether it's negative or positive, both of them shape us equally. So the intellect never just allows that natural quietude, that natural knowing to be enough, to be sufficient. And that's where the information is pulled from, pulled from awareness, and which the whole compounded issue of dependent origination then rises out of and groups around. Right? Now I'm going to bring a word in here that is, you'll find in the traditional Buddhist lingo, and I, only, I bring it in because I don't want you to be ignorant of some of these words. Some of them are fine words. And this word I'm going to bring in is fetter, F-E-T-T-E-R, fetter. Those are the qualities of our awareness that are confusing, that are based in ignorance, that are misunderstood. Okay? So the Buddha said, consciousness without fetters is awareness. Consciousness with fetters is the consciousness that you and I have, which is full of, of its, of its self-speak, full of its mis and distorted perceptions of life. And so this sense of, of having fetters of the mind. Now, he also 
was very clear. He says, yes, there are, and you can see them, and they don't have to remain permanently there. What, this is like a proclamation, you know, because go back to before you started your meditation. You didn't know a thing about a fetter. You thought it was all you, if you're honest, or if it wasn't you, it was your next-door neighbor that was the problem. But it was pretty... It was pretty clear in your mind that everything you had was because somebody, uh, because it was, had a true representation to reality. And what he's saying is that none of it has a true representation to reality. And if you look at it, instead of in a confused and beguiled way, if you just look at it from its arising, you can see the simplicity of fall back into the simple nature of what it really truly is. And what will it fall back to? A fetter will fall back into a narrative. A narrative will fall back into a story. A story will fall back into thought. A thought will fall back into words of the mind. Words of the mind is just the sense data, a part of the all that's arising each moment within one's mind and need not be taken personally or built upon at all. But because we don't have that training in us, we take each and every message of the mind literally for what it contains as a true description of events, and we find ourselves living those events out, even though they are totally false. So this is a very humbling journey. And it's only for people who are really willing to bear their souls, or not souls in Buddhist, <laughs> to bear themselves, to look, to see. And so what do we see? Because what's coming up, as I mentioned, is the feeding frenzy. Believe me, it gets going, it starts playing rough now, all right? Because the next talk I do will be on feelings. And then after that, desire, and then grasping, and then becoming, and then on and on. Death, birth, all that. <laughs> so that there is a, a persuasion that each experience has upon contact. It's upon contact the experience has a conditioned persuasion about it. It has a taste, a likable or not likable or neutral taste. All right? So the dinner guests get fed a variety of food. Well, guess what? They don't like the ones that are just bland. You know, they're not going to eat just bread without butter or whatever the blandness is. They want, a, they want it stimulating to their taste. So the feeling tones are encouraged to become more than just a simple taste. They are encouraged to become a whole feast, a whole delight, a whole experience of a, a frenzy, feeding frenzy. And so as this thing starts taking off the fetters of what we make our mind to be, that they never were, that's what a fetter is. 
You're making something that it never was. Just through saying that it is. <laughs> and if you really look at it, you can see right through that. It becomes, it becomes so obvious what we're doing to ourselves. So I really want you to take from here on out the homework with a more focus and a more diligence than perhaps you've done up until now. Because I think now we're into kind of a crucial area that if you want to journey into this thing and want to start seeing the translucence of what we have done or what we have been or what we have meant to ourselves, now's the time to begin to do that. You'll get to the point where the formations of mind, what the mind is doing in relationship to the senses, because there's just the senses. So everything the mind does outside of just realizing the input needs to be questioned. So to look at these formations and say, okay, so let me just look at, I mean, just pick any of them. Let's just look at mental formations, my karma. What I'm, what I'm making of this, how do I know that, you know, I mean, it doesn't have to, you don't have to go far. It's the naming that comes up. So now you're seeing the name that you're giving. You like it, you're attracted to it. That's also coming from you. You know, your history with it, that's also coming from you. Wonder what kind of flower that is. You know, all of that, personality, disposition, orientation, all of that, expectation, all of it, all of it, all of it. It's coming from us. It's coming from our minds. Now, let's see. Now, who wants to come? Because... When you see that, your mind gets very quiet because you realize it isn't you. You're just making up. Even though everybody calls this by everybody that's a true florist knows that's a whatever it is. <laughs> and there's a common deceit that everybody has agreed to participate in. Doesn't make it so. And when you see that, you don't want even the common deceit. You get quiet. Doesn't stop the sense data from coming in, but it clears the room out because nothing is being made of that sense data. And you think, well, how can I protect myself or whatever? I don't know what you throw up as an objection to that quietude, but it can be considerable. So it's worth knowing what you put up against the door to keep yourself noisy, to keep the quiet out. Because you have to actually tr force yourself to be noisy. Noise isn't the given of life. Quiet's the given. The absence of noise. We keep the noise going so that we don't have any space so that the quiet can get in and show us what the truth of life is about. So I, I want to just mention, you know, I was at a Krishnamurti uh, 
talk many years ago. And he says, he says, uh, do you want to know my secret? You know, so everybody leans forward and he says, I don't mind what's happening, he said. And everybody said, that's it? <laughs> Tell me your real secret. And he says, I don't mind what's happening, that's all. You see, now, wait a second before you just dismiss that as some... When you don't mind what's happening, you don't mind the forms that life is are taking. You see? You don't mind the expression, the way it's arising. Objection to the way it's arising isn't about the form. It's about our individual stance and resistance or grasping of that form. That's where the whole thing gets confusing. But just the form arising, I don't mind. Now you say, well, are you just separating yourself out from life? Not at all. That is the way one cares. That is access to caring. That is access to love. It is when you are reactive to what's occurring or try to form what's occurring or mind what's occurring that you have your bereft of love. Because you're trying to change the world. The world knows itself in love. And when we're not full of our ideas about the world, it can know itself. So the quieter we are, the more the world comes together in love. So not minding what is happening is not, is not, not caring about what's happening. Deeply, deep feeling, empathetic and compassionate resonance of the heart. And yet you, even from that nothing is made. Nothing is turned away from. Nothing is embellished. Even from that deep caring, there is quiet. No romanticism. Oh, the moon, it looks so, I bet this is, uh, no, not just, just the love, just the intimacy, just the awe and the wonder of the moon. That's all. Just the little things, the little acts, the common objects. You can feel it in the room. At times, we can meet mentally in that quiet and feel the disposition of the room. All of us agreeing to look in a particular way, quiet, a quiet way together. So we're aware. We're aware of what we pay attention to. We're aware. We're not going to be confused in ignorance anymore about how this mind is moving. 
And how we're not going to be confused of the meaning, of where the meaning comes from that we impart to each and every object, or person, thing in life. We're not going to be confused about that anymore. And you know what? That's the way to end suffering. Okay, all. Can we sit for a minute or two? Sometimes you can sense the whirlwind of the frenzy within you. 10,000 things you haven't done, conversations that are dangling, left unfinished, self-criticisms, judgments, partial images, Memories. And somehow we call that a life. Somehow that we look forward to when we get up in the morning. Okay, so if there are any questions or comments, I'd be happy to do what I can to answer. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The uh, question is about fetters, and they seem to be the habit, so the karmic formations that arise there. They are. They're, I mean, the sense. Here's a. a um, here's. I'll, sh- I'll show you a very common fetter. So the all of our experience are the sense data that comes in, right? So, but. The sense data that come in seem to go through a sense of me, right? That understands what that sense data is. The sense of me is a fetter. Fetter is actually defined as, if you look it up in a dictionary, which I did, is the manacle. You know the leg irons of a prisoner? Well, that's what a, they're called fetters. So it gives you a pretty... <laughs> gives you a really graphic description of what the term is supposed to be. But it's, it's what we make of the sense data. It's really what we make of the sense data. That's everything you might say outside of the sense data itself has some fetter quality to it. I was going to say fetish, but that's not. <laughs> and so... Okay, so it doesn't mean it's wrong. You've got to interpret the world in a certain way to navigate through it, do functional things. So it's not, 
the limitation of talking in this way is that you think every thought is wrong, that you shouldn't have any thought. Or that, you know, we live and survive and being able to remember where our car is so that we can get to it, you know. So that the, the way the mind works is fettered. Uh, so that, that, that's just, but to know that it is that. I mean, as I mentioned, prior to many of us starting meditation, this is reality. Fetters were reality, you know. It wasn't just the senses coming in, it was my projection of what you thought of me, all of that was true. Now, if you own it, if you just admit to the fact that you don't like me, we can go on and meet together, you see? And that's, we just took that as the reality of the situation. So just to, just to have some space so that there's quietude. And so if you do that, 90x percent of the fetters will eliminate themselves. You still want to remember where your car is, and you want to know it's your car, right? So there's going to be a relationship of name and form and some realization that's associated with those arising. But it doesn't, you know, in, it's not convincing anymore. Right? Okay. Okay. And so I feel like I'd lost your words. And okay, so let me give you. A, a, he says that sometimes um, he feels at a loss of words, and if he doesn't habituate his response, he feels at a kind of a loss as to what to say or how to interact, and that he may even feel that he could hurt that person if he didn't go back to his conditioned responses. Right? So, okay. So you have to test that theory. Okay, so here's how you test it. Uh, before you respond, see what you would have normally said. See, feel all that stirring within you, you know, and how you would have. But then go to this area, the heart area, and just warm it. Just stand there for a minute. Take a few seconds and just warm your... And so in other words, you're making contact with this person, not just trying to say something to that object but actually taking the person into your heart. So you're feeling a sense of connection. And then, without thinking about what is going to be said, and certainly not fearing what is going to be said, let your heart speak. Let your heart speak. And it could be a compliment. Oh, you look, you know, that's a nice dress or something on you. Or, or you know, whatever, I can't. It, you can't, I can't make an example of a spontaneous comment because <laughs> those two are antithesis. But just, just see if something very natural doesn't come out of you that's much more creative than if you had crea- gone back to a conditioned response. Now that's part of it. Part of what you're saying sounds as if it may have a little bit of struggle in there, a little bit of self-identity, a little bit of pain body, 
right, associated with you, where you feel uncomfortable in silence, you feel like maybe unworthy, or some part of you may feel diminished when you aren't saying something, and so saying something, anything is better than saying nothing. So you have to explore all of the motivated reasons that you speak the way you do and how you do. Often you'll find pain associated with how you speak. And for that, you have, to use a, you have to go back and look at those issues. You have to feel and experience the issues that are in you that have you speak before you're really ready to say authentic things rather than conditioned things. Okay? That, doing both of those things, doing that, but also moving ahead in action with the kindness of your heart in conversation so that you don't just wait until all of that past stuff is dug up and understood before you start conversing again. You converse all along the, the path of that healing, but just staying as focused on heart and being sensitive to the person in front of you as you possibly can. Okay? So that then those old patterns, pain patterns, are being actually moved, moved through rather than reconditioned. Okay? So... Good luck to you. <laughs> All of us have similar, similar patterns. Let us not fool ourselves. All of us do. Yes, sir. Well, you, he's saying that if the way it works in his mind is the image of having an office is full of paper and, you know, just nothing's ever been thrown away. It's like a hoarder, right? <laughs> well, the hardest thing in the world for a hoarder is to throw anything away because each thing means something, has an emotional connection to each and every piece of paper in that office, so to speak. And that's really what our fetters are. We have a memory base. We have experience associated. They're often linked to our self-image. They're tied to a simple sense of representation or meaning that we've given life. It's not an easy task to take on this office work and to start looking through these papers. But what else have you got to do in the rest of your life? Because if you don't do that, you're just going to put more paper, more piles of paper in your office. That's, those are the two possibilities. So let's start cleaning some things out. Just feel it. You know, say, wow. This means so much to me. Okay, great. Let me feel it. And in my own time and with my patience, you know, it's Okay. I, it reminds me of when, I, when you're a monk, you don't have anything, right? So I was a monk. I didn't have anything. Somebody gave me a boned, carved Buddha made out of bone, right? So you death and dying and all that, and you got this beautiful Buddha, and he's sitting carved out of a bone. You go, oh, my God, what a great Buddha. 
So I put it, it was my one possession, that and my toothbrush. <laughs> so there, I had this bone card Buddha, and it started weighing on me. You know, it's like I couldn't just, I kept thinking, maybe I should lock my door. <laughs> and so I gave it away. Right? I just gave it away. You know what? I didn't miss it. It was the only possession I had, and I did not miss it. There was a lesson there somewhere. Anything, anyone else? Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and you know, I find, like, and, and then that becomes like an additional piece of like, it's like a gap in an expected communication. Even though it's because we're so fast to like the expectations that we will respond, and when you take that whatever it is that moment, so because you're uncomfortable and it doesn't make it wrong. It doesn't, you know, she was saying that in, in the uh, moment of interaction, you know, sometimes when you take that heartfelt time to connect with the other person, that gap or space of silence is uncomfortable to the other person and they'll, they'll try to get things moving with their own conversation. And Okay, so, I mean, wh what's going to rule us here? I mean, you see, all of that, all of our sense of being upset or something's wrong with me, I'm not saying what's right. All of that's coming from me, from my own pain, filling in the quiet. All there is is a moment of quiet there. That's all there is. You're not going to be, you're not going to be forever in quiet. The heart will speak. You know, it'll just say it appropriately in its own way. And people may have to make an adjustment to you because a lot of the talk that you normally did now is condensed down a little bit. And some people will fall away because they liked you noisy and other people now will connect with you because you're not. And so there is often a transformation of friendship that goes on in this. But you feel so much more authentic in what you are able to bring to life that it makes it well worth it. So don't let the fact that it's uncomfortable unsettle you. We're going to be talking next time about feelings and we're going to do, spend two sessions on it because it's at the heart of why we rev ourselves up needlessly right why the food why the feeding frenzy occurs so we have to be stronger than the cultural conditioned patterns that we live with it you see that we're taking everything on here we're not just taking our fetters on we're taking the cultural fetters on as well we're taking it all on. Okay, no, enough for this evening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.